All right, scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, let's try that again. Good morning, church. Thank you. Uh, today we're continuing our series in the book of Zechariah, and we're going to think through chapter 6 together. Uh, and as you've been saying, Zechariah was given eight visions in total, and he was called to share these visions to God's people as they were uh, returning from exile and seeking to rebuild their lives. Uh, God is wanting to encourage his people and give them hope through these visions. And so uh, as we wrap up this portion of Zechariah, uh, we're going to be looking at this eighth and final vision today, and my prayer is that no matter how difficult and challenging uh, your life may be right now, that God would be the source of your comfort and hope, uh, that you would be given the grace to faithfully endure uh, during this season. Uh, now, there are some details in this passage uh, that can be a little difficult uh, to parse, but the basic meaning of this vision is fairly obvious, so I'll take some time to explain the vision, and then I'm going to offer some reflection on what the appropriate response ought to be for us, and I, I don't intend to speak very long today, uh, so you're welcome. Uh, so what is, what is this eighth, eighth vision? Let me uh, share some slides with you, okay? Okay. Uh, we have here in our passage, it says, again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. Uh, you can show the next slide, perhaps. Okay, so there we go. Hope you see the colors there. If you don't see it, red, black, white, and that's supposed to be the dappled horses, okay? So that's sort of, sort of the vision here, and you, you see in the backdrop, you got the two mountains, but these mountains it says that they were made in bronze, mountains of bronze, and emphasize the fact that all these horses were strong. Now, uh, there, there has been some speculation uh, made on, on whether the color of these horses are meant to carry any special meaning. What do you think? Where should we look to determine whether these colors are supposed to mean anything? Well, we're supposed to look to Scripture, all right? I hope you believe that Scripture interprets Scripture. So when one portion of Scripture is not clear, like our passage today, it's not actually clear whether these colors mean anything, 
Uh, you have to see whether there are other portions in Scripture that perhaps say something similar. Okay, and so in this case, scholars have looked to Revelation chapter 6. I'm not sure if you guys covered that in Pastor Hugh's class yet, but uh, there are some possible clues there. Okay, so Revelation 6 basically says, and, and they, have the, they have white horses too there. Okay, white horses, in that passage says, they came out conquering and to conquer. Okay, and the red horses in that passage, it says that they came with a sword to shed blood. And the black horses in that passage speaks of grief and death. But strangely, in Revelation 6, the final horse is a pale one. It's not a dappled horse, okay? And it says, it's rider going forth to bring pestilence of every kind. Now, the question I have is, could the horses in our passage today, Zechariah, also carry the same meaning. Of course, it's possible. It's possible for sure. But I, I would say that it's inconclusive, okay? That's my conclusion. It's inconclusive. And I would also say that, you know, uh, we should not miss the forest for the trees. In other words, let's not get too caught up in the smaller details of the vision if the main meaning of the vision is rather clear. And so... I know some of you like to, you know, look at every specific detail, but I'm, I'm the type of guy that wants to make sure that we don't miss the bigger picture, okay? And so uh, that's what I like for us to focus on today. Now, the, the horse-drawn chariots uh, here in our vision, they're meant to obviously project power and strength, okay? They're sent out to do God's bidding, all right, verse four, uh, I mean, Zechariah, he asked, what are these? What, 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 what is this vision? All right, and the angel answered and said to Zechariah, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And so, interesting. Uh, what I don't like about the ESV here is that I think it gets it wrong. The, the translation is kind of weird, right? Because ESV says, they are going out to the four winds, but if you actually look at the text, right, the original text, there is no language that says going out to, and so virtually all the other translations essentially equate the four chariots to the four winds, okay? I want you to understand that, and so I think that makes more sense, and God's saying, the, my four chariots are the four winds of heaven, right? And it's basically saying that uh, these chariots are like, the wind's going forth, and they're gonna do my bidding. Uh, there's some help we can get from like passages such as Psalm 104, where it says, God makes the clouds his chariot, right? He rides on the wings of the wind, right? He makes his messengers winds, his ministers of flaming fire. That, that's the picture you ought to have in your mind. So the chariots are like the winds, right? Doing God's work, uh, signifying his power and dominion over all the earth as they go forth, okay? Now, that's the general picture, okay? So again, ch chariots signifying God's power and dominion. Now the next couple of slides should help. Next one. Uh, I want you to understand, and this is the only time I'm gonna be very technical, okay? Um, as you know, I don't like getting too grammatical, but this, this piece is rather helpful, and so I'll, I'll mention this. The eight visions 
are presented to us in the form of a chiastic structure, okay? Uh, I think I maybe mentioned that once over the past, you know, 14 years of ministry. <laughs> but if, if you've ever taken an English lit class, you know what this means, right? Chiasm, chiastic structure. Pattern is that if, if you have like a, an idea or a unit, and so in this case, consider that the first vision, okay, in this literary work, you have the first vision and the eighth vision, there's supposed to be some similarity, okay? And then you have, in this case, second vision and third vision, they're like a pair, okay? Uh, third and fourth vision, that's the sort of the climax of this work, and so whenever an author uses a chiasm, he or she intends to highlight, right, the middle portion, whether it's one unit or, or in, this, in this case, the fourth and fifth vision, okay? And then you have, uh, six and seven, which we looked at last week, they're a pair. They kind of work together, right, if you remember. So next slide. I'm going to give you a little more details, fleshing it out. And you have this, this structure where you have A, B, B, C, C, B, B, A. Okay, that's how it works. And so look, the, the first vision, there, there are some similarities, which I'm going to draw out for us in a, in a bit. <clears throat> I want you to notice eighth, uh, first and eighth vision here. The second and third is supposed to be like a pair. Sixth and seventh as well, uh, and then the fourth and fifth, uh, that, that is essentially the, the main, shall we say, the main point of this literary work of the eight, eight visions, okay? That makes sense? He who, Pastor He, would you agree? Okay, thank you. He likes when I do this stuff, all right? He's a highly grammatical guy, all right? Uh, I think that's it as far as slides go, so let's move on. And so the, the first vision... Let me, because we're on the eighth vision today, I have to mention something about the first vision because, like I said, there is a similarity, right? So the, the first vision, if you can remember, it only showed horsemen without any chariots. And these horsemen, remember, they, they served as God's patrol squad, right? That was essentially <laughs> their main function. Uh, they, they symbolized God's omniscience and basically, uh, you know, informed us that there is no country, right? Not even the ones that were considered God's enemies uh, that were beyond God's sovereign rule. This patrol squad just went through every country and they, 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 they saw every detail and they reported back to God what was happening in the world, right? So that was a picture of the first vision. Now this eighth vision resembles that first vision, but there are at least two important differences that we're not supposed to overlook, okay? Uh, the first difference is that this is not a patrol squad that first goes out. These are chariots. See, the, the, the patrol squad is, is not meant to engage in war. And so in the first vision, there is no war or battle wage, but in this vision, it's different. You have chariots sent out, right? It's a difference between individual soldiers uh, simply scoping the land versus tanks and missile launchers being deployed, right, to, being sent out to destroy the enemy, right? That's, a, that's one big difference between the first and eighth vision. And, and through this eighth vision, God is communicating to his people and to the surrounding nations who have been oppressing God's people, or such as Persia to the north or Egypt to the south, that he was on the move to bring forth his justice, right? It was sending that clear message to all people, 
that this was no longer just a patrol mission. This was a seek and destroy mission, and God was sending out his spiritual army, his chariots, to get the job done, right? Very, you know, different picture there. And so there's some similarity, but a big difference as well. Now, the second difference we see is that uh, is the, the difference in the state of the world, okay? In other words, in the first vision, the patrol squad reports back with the earth is at rest, right? That's essentially what they report back to God. The earth is at rest. And I'm not sure if you remember, but we essentially said that that wasn't a good thing. I mean, that, that doesn't mean that there was this true peace reigning over the earth. It meant that in spite of the fact that ungodly nations were continuing to wreak havoc upon God's people, there was no justice being served. In other words, these ungodly, oppressive nations were uh, bringing forth their version of justice, right? They were oppressing people, and they were creating this artificial, you know, pseudo-justice. It's like, think about North Korea, or think about China, right? You may walk through the streets and say, oh, things are so peaceful, but no, things are only peaceful because of the oppressive regime, right? Controlling people's tongues, not allowing them to speak. That is not true justice or true peace, and that's what the first vision uh, informed us of. The eighth vision is different because it says that, not, not that the earth is at ease, but it says my spirit is at ease or my spirit is at rest. And that essentially means that God's chariots did their job. Right? True justice has been accomplished. And so God's spirit is no longer troubled. That's the picture. God is at rest. So very different, right, picture. In other words, things have progressed. God has accomplished his mission. Now, how can we apply this vision to our lives, right? I have three things that I want to share with you, three big ideas, uh, and then I'll conclude our message, okay? Like I said, the message is not, not to be too long today. Number one, brothers and sisters, we need to regularly remind ourselves of the presence of God's chariots in our midst, Right? These chariots are not visible to the world, but they need to be visible to us as his people. Right? We have to be able to see with the eyes of faith that these chariots are real. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a story recorded of the prophet Elisha. It's a very well-known story. Okay? Elisha became a problem for the king of Syria at the time and because... Um, the king of Syria wanted to, destroy, he wanted to destroy Israel, but God's prophets were in the way. In this case, Elisha was a pain in his butt. And so the king of, uh, the king of Syria, rather, decided to direct his horsemen and chariots against this one man in the town called Dothan. Okay, it says that they came by night and surrounded the city. And so when Elisha woke up in the morning, and he, he goes out, and what does he see? He sees an army with horses and chariots all around the city. And his servant next to him, he was, his servant was afraid. And he said, my master, what shall we do? We're surrounded. And Elisha, again, 
looking at things with the eyes of faith, he said, do not be afraid. Really? He said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open my servant's eyes so that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's our true reality, right? You have to be able to see that God, he sends forth his chariots of fire to protect his people and to go before them and to fight for his people. My favorite two hobbies right now, as you should know, uh, are coaching baseball and playing chess, okay? And in both of those activities, there's a saying that goes like this, you need to first see it. (laughs) You gotta be able to see it first. So if you're playing chess, for instance, right, you're not to thoughtlessly move your piece without any clear purpose. Don't just move your piece because it can move in that direction. No, you have to be thought, you have to see it. In other words, you have to be able to see the next few moves first, how things are gonna play out before you make your next move. There's a great scene in the movie called Searching for Bobby Fischer. Have you seen that one? Uh, it's, there, there's a scene where this, the, the coach <clears throat> instructs this young chess prodigy, I believe his name was Josh Waitskin, uh, and uh, he goes, no, don't, don't just move, right? First, see the piece, right? See, see it first before you make the move. Yeah, that's, that's how he coaches this young prodigy. And so this, this boy, right, he, he has to like, you know, put his head down on the chessboard and basically gaze at, gaze at it for like a few minutes and then something clicks, he sees it, and then he's able to confidently make the next move. Right? That's how it works out in chess. It's the same thing in baseball. You know, trying to hit a, a fastball in baseball is one of the hardest things to do in all the sports, they say. Right? Some, some say it's the hardest thing. Uh, and you know, when the pitching gets faster, many players get jumpy, and they just start swinging reactively without really thinking, right? Uh, hoping, hoping, praying that they would just make contact. And so in those moments, good coaches are the ones that say, no, make sure you see it first. And what that essentially means is calm down, right? Don't panic, right? Don't be jumpy, right? Slow things down in your mind and see it first before you swing, right? That's good advice. That's good coaching. It's the same thing with the Christian life, in a sense. Brothers, sisters, you first need to see the reality of God and the spiritual army that goes before us into battle. Because if you see that reality first for what it is, it will properly inform you of what your, fir- or what your next move ought to be. If there's a pressing question you have right now, for instance, I wanna encourage you to test it against this reality of God's spiritual army accompanying you if you have no reason right, to fear anything in the world or what it could do to you, 
Ask yourself, what should your answer be to that question you have, to that pressing concern you have, that burden on your heart? That's the kind of mental preparation I have to do, actually, every week. Every time, actually, I share God's word, that's the mental preparation I have to do. Because God's word is so unpopular in our day. So I can't just come up here and just, you know, react. I have to think, okay, remind myself, what, what is there to fear in this world? Okay. And so if I, when I'm able to see the reality of God's chariots going before me, if there's nothing to fear, then I can speak with confidence and boldness, you see. There's a reason why all of your pastors were, were very scared. I, was, I will use that word scared, right? Because they, they weren't wanting to do this uh, when the idea was pitched. I'm talking about podcasting, okay? okay? Virtually all of them were scared to begin this podcasting project because they knew that that meant that they had to openly speak on topics that they would normally never choose to speak on on their own. Because it can be very scary, right? very scary thing given the topics we're covering. But again, if you see it first, then you're able to know what and how to speak in a manner that honors the Lord above anyone else. Okay, that, that's my first point. First, see it. Secondly, Remember that God's means of accomplishing his ultimate purpose in this world is different from the world's means, right? The world's means is by human might and by the power of a physical army and through a political movement, right? But God says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. That is the climax of these visions, right? And this idea is being reinforced in this Final vision, one one writer puts it this way. If God's chariots go forth to strike down the worldly powers of this world, then surely our task is not to seek that same kind of worldly power. Right? That makes sense? The church advances by God's grace, right, with a message of a crucified Savior. That is our weapon, (laughs) That's what we arm ourselves with, you see. We have a spiritual armor. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Okay? That's emphasizing the word of God, the truth of God, the reality of God. Okay? That is what we fight with. Now, this doesn't mean that you should avoid being involved in politics or that you should not engage in fighting for good public policy. Like, If you wanna be a good, responsible Christian, you should be informed, right? you should stay engaged, but I hope you never place your ultimate hope in any earthly kingdom or political leader, okay? Because even a quick glance of history will reveal no matter how strong 
the nation, all the great earthly kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, eventually fell. All of them, they fell. And this will hold true for any of the modern nations as well. God's kingdom is the only kingdom that will last in the end. That's what this vision reveals to us. Now, I would be deeply saddened to see our country completely unravel. And I'm seeing this, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what you're seeing, but I'm seeing wherever I go, this country is slowly unraveling. And so I'd be deeply saddened if it actually completely unraveled and if it went through a, another civil war or some kind of American revolution. But it wouldn't surprise me, right, since I know that America was never built to last forever, you see. Only God's kingdom is meant to be an eternal kingdom. Amen? So let's make sure we we're placing our hope in the right thing. Thirdly, lastly, <clears throat> I want to make this emphasis, okay, and I'm not going to share, uh, <laughs> I, I failed to share all the details with the 9 a.m. I, I think I gave more detail to the 11 a.m. Uh, congregation, so my apologies, but I'll share a little bit about what your leaders are planning to do moving forward in regards to uh, commissioning Pastor Jacob as one of our church planters, okay? But I, I want to emphasize the fact that the church is the most important institution in the world, right? I hope you can agree with that, and if you don't, then let's have a discussion, okay? Uh, and because that is the reality, I believe that our commitments and priorities ought to reflect that reality, okay? Is that asking too much? I mean, the basic theme of the Bible is God saving a people for himself, is it not? That's the church. There's no other institution that God refers to as his temple or the body of Christ or his people. And there's no other institution that's directly entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not even the family. Not even our own precious families, brothers and sisters. Pastor Paul, are you saying that you love the church more than your own family? Look, <laughs> there is a real sense in which I value and prioritize my spiritual family, the church, even above my earthly family. I mean, think about it. I mean, the reason why I do my best to love my earthly family is because of my love for the Lord and the love I have for my eternal family. Right? See how that works? I want my earthly family to become members of that eternal family because that eternal family is much more important in the end. It doesn't work the other way, right, logically, right, if you think about it. It messes, it messes things up, right? Your, your priority has to be love of God and love for his spiritual kingdom and his, his, his spiritual family for all things to kind of fall in place appropriately. With that said, let me share a few words on why we're moving forward with the idea of planting a church, okay? And, you know, this, this may begin in the form of a satellite service, and then, you know, transitioning into a church plant, or it may become just, you know, right at the beginning, a full-blown church plant. It really depends on how the Lord leads us over the next few months. 
but Pastor Jacob and I had a, uh, you know, prolonged discussion about this, and, and he's at peace with this plan, and uh, he'll, he'll take about a year to pray and prepare and mobilize people, uh, consider um, some additional details of what that may look like, okay? But why do we do this, okay? Well, one reason is because planting churches, brothers and sisters, is the best way to beat back against the enemy, right? Uh, this is one primary way in which God advances his kingdom. The enemy, right, Satan, he hates the church, and his objective is to malign it and destroy it. But God gives us a vision of victory here, of his spirit being at rest, which means there's no reason for us anymore to be afraid and to be on the offensive against the enemy. I mean, this is common knowledge among missiologists, but the best way to reach new people for Christ is through the means of planting new churches, right? Because think about it. Every ministry and every church that's ever been established, it eventually forms their own unique culture that's able to reach certain people, but not all people, right? And so there's no exception to this. At Cornerstone, we're good about reaching certain people, but we're limited, right? The CAM, they're good about reaching certain people, but they're limited. It doesn't matter what church. Every church has its blessings, but also limitations. So it's a very good idea to be a, a church planting community where we envision God's kingdom expanding through these new outreach mechanisms. Uh, I heard that some of you are somewhat concerned, right? Here are the two common ob objections that have been raised. I'm not sure, maybe, maybe objections is too strong of a word, but <laughs> maybe a little bit of pushback, okay? Or at least you're concerned, and you say, well, isn't church planting risky? <laughs> uh, that's one concern you have. Uh, another thing I heard is, uh, why ruin a good thing, you know? <laughs> Why ruin a good thing? So let me tackle these two things, okay? First, isn't church planting risky? <laughs> of course it is. Yes, the reality is that there is a high percentage of church plants that fail. We're all aware of that. And my response is, so what? <laughs> Whether a church plant fails or not, and I'm not saying Pastor Jacob's church plant is gonna fail, but. Whether a church plant fails or not, it's still going to be a win for a kingdom, for God's kingdom, because there's so much to gain still uh, through the process. Uh, when churches are planted, it creates this incredible energy, right? Leaders are energized, members are energized, as, as people give their hearts to the Lord, there's more prayer that's lifted up. There's more evangelism that takes place. Characters are changed. Faith increases. There's a lot of beauty that comes out of it. There's a lot of growth, a lot of maturity that happens through the process. And so it's always worth it. And people who are afraid, people who are not willing to take any risks, guess what? They're the ones who continually to remain stagnant in their faith, stale, they never grow, right? All they do is just play pickleball every week, that's it. 
Not to say that pickleball is wrong, okay, I'm just saying, right? There's a staleness to their lives. And so I want you to see the, the beauty in investing in such a venture, right, though it may be risky. Secondly, why, why ruin a good thing? Uh, well, you know, for our leaders, it's mainly a stewardship issue. You know, we all realize that we've been incredibly blessed over the past several years, but we also know that we have not been called into ministry just to create a fun and comfortable work environment for ourselves. And it is fun, it is fun to have all these guys, you know, your staff, I mean, there's incredible chemistry there. You know, we love to be around each other. We had a great time at our recent staff retreat, you know. Uh, we know that there's something good there, but we also know that we can't just be in this for ourselves, right? There, there is a real danger in becoming too bloated, you see. And so we wanna make sure that we continually challenge ourselves and we are obedient to God's call upon our lives. The point is not to just kinda grow our staff indefinitely. I hear there's actually more people thinking about seminary and ministry. I'm like, please stop. <laughs> no more, no, I'm just kidding. Right? Let's slow down the pace a little bit, you know, like, I don't get it, right? I'm, I'm gonna eventually have to write a paper on why we attract so many young seminarians, but I still haven't figured that out, okay? Um, kind of staying put, not doing anything, remaining stagnant is definitely an option, but we don't think that it's the best way to serve God's larger kingdom purposes, okay? And so, through these eight visions, what we see here is God calling us to return to him and to rebuild his temple. And for us, let me conclude with this thought, for us, in our current context, we believe that means, at least in part, that we're called to leverage our resources and multiply our ministry right through church planting by sending out a portion among ourselves and commissioning you to go reach more people who we, we have a hard time reaching, okay? And so I'd like to ask that you pray, uh, pray about this and join us in dreaming together and that we could really uh, create a robust community that can invest in this venture together, all right? with great faith. So let's move forward together on this, amen? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for <clears throat> Zechariah's eighth and final vision where we see the transformation from a world that is oppressed by unjust rulers to a world where your spirit is at rest. We're comforted to know that it is through your power and dominion human kingdoms rise and fall. Your kingdom lasts forever. In response to your word that brings comfort and hope, may we live with much boldness and confidence in your promises and with much eagerness to partake in your kingdom work. We now lift our voices to you in, in song to express the greatness of your kingdom and your sovereign reign over all the nations. May our worship be a testament to your glory and may it inspire us to live in accordance with your will. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's all stand together, praise to God. Surround that you are poor. 